Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you an interview with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, Blake Schwarzenbach of the band Jawbreaker, of the band The Forgetters, of the band Jets to Brazil, of the band Thorns of Life. Thorn of Life? Thorns of Life. Uh, Anyway, more on that in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email. She's like, oh, I just blew over that like it was no big deal. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email. I've gotten this wrong the last couple of weeks. Uh, it has been pointed out to me. So the email address to send an email to the show is turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you got to put that podcast in there or else uh, those emails have not been getting to me. Uh, so please send an email to that turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. I'm making a conceited effort to try and, you know, like, like actually write back and stuff. I was a little overwhelmed for a while, but you know what? Now, now it's calming down. So yeah, send me those messages. If you would like to get in touch with the show on Facebook, there is a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. And that is uh, facebook.com slash turned out a punk. And while you're there, send Tristan a big thank you for this episode because Tristan, along with Adam from Jawbreaker, uh, worked together to bring this to you today. So Tristan deserves all the credit. Thank you, Tristan. I love you, buddy. You're, you're, you're killing it. You're killing it, buddy. You're killing it, Tristan. You know, I don't really say that to him in real life, so I can only communicate to him in uh, a real open, loving way through a podcast. So that's why you're hearing it here. Uh, you can find the, all the same stuff that we post up on that Facebook page because we do post things on that Facebook page that get sent into the show or sh- things that pertain to the show and links and whatnot. Uh, but if you don't use Facebook like myself and you would like to see that stuff, there is a Tumblr page. It's turnedoutapunk.tumblr.com and we, tr- we cross-post most of the stuff over there as well. So we can all share in that fun. You know, those of us that still use Tumblr can share in that fun, I should say. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to support the show, the best way of doing that is by going over to iTunes, writing a review for this thing, rating it, and subscribing to it. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that's been doing that. I really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And if, and if you, uh, if, if you uh, don't use iTunes and you still want to support the show, tell all your friends. I'm getting a lot of cool emails from people Actually, like people all over the world, you know, we've got emails from people writing in from places to say that they like the show and they're telling their friends about it. And like, that's really how you spread the word about this thing is, you know, don't rely on the, the techno oligarchs, technoglarks to spread the word for us. We can just spread ourselves, you know, the old fashioned way. Just tell your buds about this podcast that does exist in a techno oligarchical coal kind of format but that's the contradiction that we all live in now um okay uh when we talk about supporting this show i cannot do so without mentioning the fine folks at vans vans came aboard and sponsored this podcast they're like hey book whoever the heck you like uh we just want you to keep doing it so thank you very much to them for doing so because uh it means that uh i can you know keep doing fun stuff like this because my gosh it's today a fun one Today on the show, Blake from Jawbreaker, Blake Schwarzenbach. If you are not familiar with the work of Mr. Schwarzenbach, uh, I guess 
I don't know what I, well, I don't know what I can say for you. I don't know what I can say to you. Uh, he was in Jawbreaker, which is a legendary band, a band that shaped many of our young lives in in through song, and a band that I never got to see live. And I looks like now I might get a chance. They haven't announced any Toronto dates yet, but they have uh, played some reunion shows since their triumphant Riot Fest return. Uh, when I was talking to Blake, he was uh, you know wrapping up some practice stuff and he was saying how you'll you'll hear you'll hear in the episode we talk about a little bit so yeah jawbreaker is back so now i'll finally get a chance to see him one of the greatest bands of all time but he didn't stop there he went on to do jets to brazil which i think if i'm not mistaken that first record still might be or maybe it's the second one but the first one i'm pretty sure is the highest selling record ever released on jtria at least it was when i was on that label that was the benchmark we all had to strive for they would have meetings where all the bands would have to sit down and just stare at the Jets Brazil record and, and visualize achieving that kind of success. No, I'm kidding. That never happened. Uh, after that band broke up, he did the forgetters and thorns of life, uh, two incredible bands under documented bands, but both great bands from, uh, what I heard, I got to play, play with the forgetters. That's where I first got to meet Blake a couple times actually. And, you know, finally getting a chance to sit down and have this conversation with them. This is the conversation that I really hope I one day get to have with uh, a musician I'm a huge fan of when I first meet him. And you know, that's why we got this podcast. So now there's a vehicle to do so. So when Tristan told me that, A, I reached out to Adam from Jawbreaker and Blake wants to do the show, I was beside myself with joy. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. You can sit back and enjoy this thing. There's a lot of cool stuff in this episode. Uh, A lot of stuff that we're going to dive into on footnotes. I guess before I let you listen to this, I should remind you that there are two other podcasts currently in the Turned Out of Punk family. Maybe a third to return soon, but I don't want to talk about that until it's happened. Uh, The two other podcasts are Turned Out of Punk footnotes hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole, where we dissect and go into it. You know, the minutia of each episode of Turned Out of Punk. And we are going to have a lot to go into after this episode. And then there's also Oil and Flowers, a cannabis podcast hosted by myself and Buddha Blaze, which has a new episode dropping this week as well. Doesn't really pertain to this episode as much. I, I think I bring up cannabis once, but that's only in talking about bad religion and into the unknown. So you'll hear it. It makes sense in context. Uh, but yeah, so there's gonna be a lot to go into from this episode on footnotes. Uh, I can't really ramble on anymore, except I do think I have one note. I think there was like something I, I had to have a correction. Oh yeah. I, I talk about the headless chicken, uh, appearance on the hometown atrocities comp, which is a band that Tom York was in. I don't know if he actually did do the layout. I say he did the layout, but now I was looking at the seven the other day and I don't remember where I got that idea from. Cause I don't really see his name on the credit. But that's it. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy Blake Schwarzenbach on Turned Out a Punk. Blake, thank you for coming on the show today. Damon, I got to tell you, you know, I love Blur. I love the Gorillas. I love all your work. <laughs> well, I tell you, that I, I never thought when I was playing the main stage at Glastonbury that I'd have a chance to sit down and talk to you one day. No, unfortunately, I'm the Damien that plays in Fucked Up that has never once graced the main stage uh, or anything uh, approaching the main stage at Glastonbury Festival. So, uh, <laughs> you guys didn't play. Uh, you guys didn't play any of those festivals when you were kind of like, uh, you know, like Dear You era. 
We did, um, you know, we did some radio shows on the West Coast mm-hmm. with Oasis and Radiohead and No Doubt <laughs> and Everclear. Oh, wow. That gives you a, that's a time capsule for you. Well, uh, <laughs> and they were enormously disappointing for us, but kind of great to see Radiohead, like Ben's era Radiohead mm-hmm. playing, I think, first or second on some of those shows. And it was that was mind blowing. Well, it's awesome to think that, like, you know, certainly you guys in Radiohead and No Doubt, you know, can't take anything away from No Doubt, all come from punk bands, right? Like it, way back when Tom York was in Headless Chicken, I think they were called. And oh, they, I don't know about that. They put out a seven-inch. He actually did all the layout for it on the Hometown Atrocities compilation. They had a song on that comp. And, uh, and so there is that punk connection on those radio shows all those years later, too. Sure. Um, but this is a huge thrill for me to get to do because, as I was telling you off-air, and I've told you this before in person, there are a few people that I think are a greater influence on me as a vocalist and, and trying to emulate you know, you're like yourself. There's a couple other vocalists too that I'm trying to emulate, but I think, you know, you brought that melody into the harshness, which is something that I'm forever indebted to you for as, as are many other vocalists. I'm sure you're aware of too. Wow. Well, thanks. (laughs) Um, but I'm not going to talk about me. I want to talk about you and I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is Blake. How'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? You know, I was thinking about it. And I lived in Portland, Oregon in middle school. Mm. And I, I used to go to the record store all the time downtown, take the bus down there and um, look at albums. And uh, there, I got a Wipers 7-inch. Wow. Uh, <laughs> just because it was local. Mm-hmm. And I, had, I read something in like the weekly paper about it. And uh, so I bought a Wipers, uh, a Sado Nation 7-inch. <laughs> And an Echo and the Bunnymen, I think Crocodiles, that record, just on hearsay. And um, and I didn't understand it at all. You know, I thought it was, I love the art. I thought it was scary. And that kind of kind of opened a door, which I, I didn't really walk through until much later. But that was like the first inkling that there was something going on that was underground. It's funny, because if you put all three of those bands in a blender, you'd have something... Uh, kind of approaching what Jawbreaker would wind up sounding like, at least to me. Thank you. <laughs> Those I are... thought Forgetters was like the that. Yeah, that's true, actually. We Caroline was very into Wipers, and um, I don't know, those those elements really came together in that band, but certainly like the, uh, the kind of dark guitar stuff. Mm-hmm. I grew up just listening to that kind of, that what you call it, like post-punk guitar, I guess. How old were you when you bought those three singles? I don't know, man. I, I was in seventh grade, probably. Wow. So whatever that would be. What an amazing kind of like array to pick up, too. Like, you know, you get three sonically incredibly different bands, all coming from this sort of like punk, new wave, new music kind of explosion that's happening. But not, not neither of them, none of them, sorry, sound the same. Yeah, I know. I feel it was very fortuitous, you know. And it was such a strange time to get there was no access to that kind of culture mm-hmm. really, especially, I mean, Portland wasn't in this, it's a pretty arty town, but it, um, I was lucky to find two local artists right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that speaks to the locality. Like they had clearly put their seven inches in the cool store and, you know, 
Why were you picking up the week, the weekly music paper? Were you kind of already aware of just sort of like a larger music culture? Were you like a music kid? I was definitely a music kid, but um, I think it was my dad. My dad was pretty cool, and he always had tons of records in the house and uh, played a lot of music. So I probably read it because he had it at home. And, you know, I wasn't going out to cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. I was like going to soccer and stuff. <laughs> uh, what kind of stuff was your dad listening to? He liked a lot of the singer-songwriter. Well, Randy Newman was like a real shared love mm-hmm. with us and Jackson Brown. And then he, he was seeing uh, a woman who was really into cool music. And she kind of brought in Blondie and the Cars. And she knew a lot of, I don't know, she brought some great records into our life. So that, that kind of shared collection between them as a couple was kind of my early education. Had you gone to any concerts? I know you said you kind of got, you pursued this punk path a little bit later on more seriously, but were you going to any other just like broadly termed like music concerts at this time? Oh, yeah. I think that I saw Pat Benatar and Loverboy. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> that, that was the first one I think I went to on my own. I brought a friend with me and we... We got dropped off and saw it. And I've always loved Myron Grumbacher, the drummer from Benatar, because he, he like would climb around the front of his set during his drum solo, playing <laughs> drums like backwards. It was so cool. <laughs> that must have been like a huge venue, too. It was, it was uh, their kind of first tour. So it was, I think it was called the Paramount Theater. It was, to oh. me, it's kind of intimate, like maybe a yeah. 1,500 people or something. That, that, I, I, I went to like I saw Van Halen and um, the Kinks and stuff at, at the big place in Portland, whatever that their you know dome was. <laughs> Is that Van Halen and the Kinks touring together? No, oh, no, okay. no. It was Halen like uh, <laughs> Women and Children first, and I think it was I think it was the Kinks give the people what they want. It's <laughs> amazing. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good shows. And my yeah. dad and I Springsteen together, which was really rad because. I got to stay up till like midnight, you know, because he did a one of those epic yeah five hour shows. Yeah. <laughs> what out of all that early stuff was any of it speaking to you more than others, or was it all kind of just like you just you just love music in general at that point? I think I liked that. You know what I really liked was palm mute guitar, <laughs> power pop. Yeah. Uh, my uncle gave me a copy of the Beat. Like the Paul Collins beat, absolutely, and um, it just blew my mind because like the and I listen to it still. The clean, the clean palm mute on those songs is so tantalizing, you know. Well, it's crazy to think that there's like those three songwriters in the Nerves, and all of them kind of go on to also write, you know, canon worthy power pop songs in their post Nerves incarnation. But like, yet all three of them were together at one time in that band. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty wild. That's awesome, though, that he was because the beat weren't that big, right? Like, that's kind of a deeper cut kind of record for him to be into. I know. My uncle is a weird guy. And he, <laughs> he had one of the first Walkmans, which was like <laughs> the, met, the metal one, you know, with the twin faders for a left and right channel. Really <laughs> beautiful piece of hardware. Yeah. So I listened to it on that, and it was really like a, you know, kind of an aha moment of like, damn. <laughs> and I, you know, like the like the fool that I am, I, I immediately like went for a Boss distortion box and like tried to emulate that, <laughs> not knowing till like much year later that it was it was the cleanliness, like 
the ACDC trick of clean channels just with power and repetition. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What an amazing period for American music. It was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, so. In hindsight. Um, So, you know, like where did you kind of go from there? Like eventually you moved down to the West Coast. Oh, sorry, down to the West Coast. Sorry, down to like California, right? So did you go to any shows? Did you meet any punk kids when you were still up in Portland? Um, no, not really. I, I think I went to LA in ninth grade Okay, and that was like an immediate, really swift kind of education. <laughs> uh, cause it was really happening then. Yeah. And I was coming in with like my flared pants and my, you know, trying to fit in this kind of prep school, which mm-hmm. was pretty intense in itself. But, uh, pretty quickly I got invited to like, um, a palladium show that was, like one of the best shows ever. I think it was adolescence and uh, social D and um, I can't even, I don't know, wasted youth. One of the youth bands, <laughs> but it was massive. It was like a punkathon and um, super violent and, and lots of like big older people. And that was, that just tore the lid off my skull. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. Cause like, you know, if it would be one thing, I guess, even if you had been going to shows, in Portland prior to it, but that's like jumping right into the fire at that point too. Like how many people were at that show? Like hundreds, like if not a thousand. Oh, I, yeah, I would say a thousand, at least to a small kid, you know, yeah. like a 15 year old. It might've been five. Palladium's pretty big though. Mm-hmm. It's big and it was packed. Uh, and that certainly it like jives with all the photos and, and videos I've seen from that kind of era of, of shows in, in Los Angeles. Like, and as you mentioned, the violence like that had become like a real thing around that time. Oh, it was hairy, man. There was like violent, violent slamming, you know, and, and, um, clicks, like a lot of flannel and kind of V 13, like Mm -hmm. uh, suicidal kind of vibe. Um, they, all the big shows I went to at that time felt like that. Like, yeah, there was always that, that, that potential, and who did you go to that show with? Did you kind of like immediately fall in with other punk kids at the school or did you kind of search it out by yourself? No, I went, yeah, a couple cool girls told me like, oh, we're going to the show. You can come with us if you want. <laughs> you know, and I I did. Absolutely. <laughs> Where do I go? <laughs> yeah, most of my education was from the girls at our school were way cooler than in terms of music. They knew Susie, you know, there was like a kind of kind of new romantic faction and then and then they knew the punk stuff too was that paisley underground scene happening yet in LA? oh yeah yeah and i got really into that that was like my my first real favorite local band was dream syndicate oh yeah because i went to see the psychedelic furs in santa monica and dream syndicate opened and um they just they were just really cool like really mysterious i, I got their days of wine and roses like after that so that became that was kind of my go-to record. I would just listen to it all the time. That's amazing. That's that album is yeah one of the all-time greats. We're, we're, it's really yeah it really holds up. And yeah. then it, you know I saw Green on Red and Rain Parade and like some of the other bands kind of associated with that scene. And those were really cool shows because they were very arty and small and kind of more. They were definitely like adult shows. But uh, somehow I my friends and I managed to get into some of them. That was always very cool. 
Yeah, I've kind of always wondered, what was that scene around there? Was it like people that were kind of into that first wave or that early wave of punk or into that more kind of garage scene in L.A. that were kind of gravitating towards it? It, it felt to me like just kind of cool people, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> Cooler than us, sure. They <laughs> kind of had that, that uh, what was like John Cale look. Yeah. A very like New York 60s factory kind of look and just the L.A., kind of the L.A. art scene. What about the Bangles? Did you ever see them, or, that, or when they were the Bangs? I guess right. I didn't. I didn't see them. No. Okay. It's, I guess they were the biggest band that kind of made it out of that scene, other than Dream Syndicate, obviously. But yeah, Go Go. I saw the Go Go's. Oh yeah. And uh, you know they were pretty big. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but were they kind of the part of that scene, or were they in a different scene? I, it seems like they came out of it, but then they yeah. got quickly like grew. Soon. <laughs> grew way out of it and maybe was shunned. <laughs> Where I guess like uh, so you're kind of going to shows at this point. Did you play music at all? Were you playing music at this age? I, I was. I, I started as a drummer in Portland, and um, and then when I got to L.A., I met a drummer right away, and he was so good that I <laughs> I decided I'd try and play a string instrument. So I I started playing bass, and then eventually you found a guitar and kind of started playing that when you were in portland did you play in any bands as a drummer no no i didn't i just i had a look my drum set up in my closet yeah and I'd go in there and like play along the records <laughs> so what was your first band called uh red harvest oh really yeah it was adam adam fowler yeah. from john breaker and a guy named rich Desaire who played bass and we were just like a surf goth power trio <laughs> <laughs> what were that where was that influence coming from the surf stuff i you know i think kind of that same like wipers um echo like just kind of dark i knew e minor and i thought that was cool like the e minor c progression pretty much was everything we wrote <laughs> if you had those two chords you know you could just and I, I would basically pimp those guys out so i could do solos <laughs> Just put them on a loop and like shred over it. <laughs> it's like I guess like were you guys fitting into a scene at that point? Were you playing shows? We just played parties. Yeah, like we weren't really the the first connection I had with anyone who was in a band that was doing anything was a band called Magnolia Thunderpussy. Oh, I don't who, even who Magnolia Thunderpussy. You stumped me with that one. Yeah, they were they were like the heroes of the West Side. <laughs> they, they ended up on SST actually. They, um, I think they broke up right after they signed, but they, they were kind of connected the, more to like, they knew all the LA punk stuff and they would play parties all the time. And, um, they were just this kind of wild, very SST, like psychedelic country surf, like just all this, this kind of mess of styles. Yeah. Cause I guess that's the point where, to me, like, you know, obviously looking from a distance, but like, it seems like the LA scene begins to sort of dissolve into all these like much smaller scenes, but a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there were, I felt like there were big shows and then there were like more genre oriented shows. Mm -hmm. so the big ones felt the same, but kind of in terms of the wide like audience and I don't know. In my memory, they're, they're similar. Who were the big bands at that time to you? Well, I mean, like, 
a, a lot of SST bands, really. I, I would see the the Minutemen almost every weekend. It seemed like. Yeah. They, and th- those were smaller shows at that time. But like when Husker Du came, it was a huge, you know, UCLA show, and um, I would see Social Distortion a lot, and they were pretty big then. Yeah. And uh, Black Flag was always, you know, gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, suicidal. That was a huge show, like at Perkins Palace, I think, in Pasadena. Terrifying. Yeah, I could imagine that would be a. Was Bad Religion going at the? I guess they were going right, but were they back to the known or were they still in the unknown? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I didn't end up seeing them till a lot later. Okay, I liked them. Like I had, how could it help me any worse? Mm-hmm. But I, maybe they weren't as active when I was going. They were in that in the uh, the weeds, the yeah. tall grass, <laughs> <laughs> the literal weed. They were in the literal yeah. weed at that point. <laughs> big, big fan of Into the Unknown, though. Yeah, it's a good record. I think that I think history has served that record pretty well. Yeah, Jawbreaker did a cover of uh, Wild Goose. Uh, what record's that on? It's on uh, Into the Unknown, I think. Well, no, but I mean, what record's your cover of it on? Oh, we just did it. We just did it live. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> I was gonna be like, I've got to hear that record. I've never heard that. Oh, that's fucking awesome. Well, maybe you could record it again one day. Maybe. Just no, we're talking about resurrecting it now that we're, we're active. Uh, so, you know, you're going to all these shows and obviously you're now playing this band. What were, like, the kids around you into at this time? Were they kind of, like, into the same scene or were kids into different scenes? Um, I mean, there was, like, a pretty rabid punk scene going on. Yeah. And I, I guess the big stuff that we thought was kind of like the... The like yuppie scum stuff was kind of like Duran Duran and you know <laughs> maybe U two. Um, there was kind of pop, you know, pop alternative or whatever you would call it. Mm-hmm. Boinkers. That's what <laughs> the surf guys called them. Boinkers. Boinkers. People who like new wave music, like we were posers. <laughs> so there was like boinker music, and then there was kind of like you know real real music. The real fans, the legit kids. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess like at the end of high school, you what made you decide to go to New York? What was that decision based on? Well, I actually I went to Santa Cruz first. Oh, OK. I, I'm, I was very reactive at that point, And like my thinking was I had renounced punk at the end of high school. I was totally into like heavy rock. And I, I sold on my punk records and I, I was just like listening to metal and like long hair music. <laughs> And it was really an unfortunate phase. But <laughs> what were some of the bands that you were into? And that I was, I, well, I mean, I tried to be into like Metal Blade stuff. Yeah. So I, oh God, I, I don't even remember the names, but I would buy like the comps and, you know, <laughs> Trouble, like bands like that, like kind of heavy, St. Vitus kind of kicked it off. So it's definitely I, the sludgier side of things though. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, honestly, I love Rat too. I still do. <laughs> <laughs> like out of the cellar is such a great record <laughs> and um yeah i was kind of like you know i'm a no i'm a skateboarder and i'm like a am in the like dirty rock and i had long i grew my hair really long and it is so i decided like the opposite of la is santa cruz because it's rural and it's like you know where hippies are and stuff and so i went there and I almost immediately realized like it was totally the wrong choice for where I had too much like rage in me at that point, <laughs> and I got I got kicked out actually of uh, housing for starting a fire. What? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did I the dorm on fire. Wow. By accident yeah. or is this like a deliberate thing? No, it was – well, it was like – it was a mistake, kind of an intentional mistake. I, I lit like some flyers on fire in a, in a hallway and then it – but it like caught. It took hold and, and became this like raging inferno and um, – so fortunately, everyone was evacuated. You know, they, they put out the fire, and then I had a meeting with housing about a month <laughs> later, and they're like, "You you cannot live here anymore." Oh, that's so a, a, it, I I went to Canada actually. I went to Nova Scotia and, and worked construction for my stepdad, who has a had a company in in Halifax. Wow! And, and then I applied to schools, and I I got into NYU, and thought that'll be a better fit for my wild <laughs> fire starting ways <laughs> <laughs> wait back to halifax did you kind of go to any were you into any music stuff then or was it just kind of strictly working at that point um you know i was really into music like i would go down and buy records yeah um i had a guitar there but i did I didn't see any local stuff i didn't really know of any i don't know that there was like a halifax punk scene there probably was well that's where that's where the your future label mates sloan were kind of getting started probably around the same time in halifax right yeah see i didn't know about sloan then yeah no i think they would have been i think they were still kind of like doing seven second style bands back then um but that, that's amazing that you guys were kind of both in the same city at the same time <laughs> yeah You're yeah familiar. i mean i was just working like a lot yeah. then I guess you had to pay off some, uh, you know, renovation bills back at the old Almanada. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you go to NYU. What was it kind of like when you get down to NYU? You were still in your metal years, or are you kind of like coming out of that at that point? Yeah, I'd kind of come to my senses. I was, I was, fortunately, like I hit, um, you know, what do they call that? Like the dialectic, like I hit synthesis. So I was listening to a lot of different music, but definitely still identifying as a punk and Adam went with me. He, he came to go to school too. So we knew we were going to do music together. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And then New York was really happening right then. You know, like it was kind of the hardcore scene was pretty, pretty full on at that point. Was that the stuff you were mainly going to? Cause like, that's the other thing, New York, I guess, much like Los Angeles, there's like, you know, there's that scene. Then there's the whole like sort of AMREP, uh, pig fuck music, I guess they called it back then, kind of scene that's going on too. And then there's, you know, there's like all these like little scenes in New York at the same time. Right. We, yeah. Well, we didn't, we were very West Coast. Like we didn't know East Coast hardcore. Yeah. And it wasn't really until we met Chris, um, who, who grew up in that scene. He grew up in Connecticut going to the Anthrax. And like, then we started seeing and learning more about all the stuff, especially DC. Like I, I would actually go up to um, Wesleyan a lot and those bands were playing eclectic house there, like mm -hmm. Fugazi's early shows and, um, um, Bobby Sullivan's band, like not lunch meat, but the one, um, not mission, um, soul side, soul side. That's right. And King face, like a lot of that, that, I don't know. It was a very specific era, but, yeah. um, they, those guys had like a deal with, uh, with Wesleyan where they, they liked that venue. So I had friends who lived up there and we would go see those shows. And then we'd go to like the CB's shows when we could handle it. Matinees were pretty hairy. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't like emotionally connect with that scene. I was, you know, it was a little too much like male bravado for me. Mm -hmm. 
but I respected the, the like the magnitude of the events. You know, just seeing that many people in a in daytime format was so shocking. Yeah, it's, and it's also like it's another few years before they have kind of their revolution summer moment, and you have that whole ABC you No know, Rio scene kind of spring up, which is almost the reaction to the scene that I guess you kind of witnessed at that time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, what were were there like? What were some of the local bands that you were into though in New York at that time period, or were there any that you kind of? Well, we had our friends were in a band called Flower, that went on to be Cell. Who oh were, yeah. On DGC, actually, um, and Versus, like those guys, two of the members of Flower went to form those other two bands, and they were they were really beautiful, kind of Sonic Youth style band. Um, who who was the other one? Uh, um, Live Skull. Oh yeah, they were great. They would always play at CBs and just kind of you know kind of more in that Sonic Youth, I guess, camp, mm-hmm. a very noisy experimental stuff. Um, and then we go to Maxwell's a lot too. Like Soul Asylum was fucking on fire at that point. Mm. Like hang right before hang time, maybe while you were out. And I really love that that like twin tone era. Great live show. Yeah, it gets like once again, it's like that you know, like the diversity of the American underground at that time period, like pre alternative music explosion. It's just amazing how many bands were were out there doing completely different things and sounds and and still kind of existing under this one umbrella of just underground music yeah yeah a lot of different i mean there were so many venues too Mm -hmm. the pyramid club and just surprising like kind of rock rock spaces where you find weirdo bands playing but and you know being in new york was obviously fortunate because everyone came through so we saw a lot of touring bands too yeah yeah, everyone goes to New York. It's kind of like, I guess, the the penultimate stop for bands on the East Coast. Yeah. It, it's funny, though, too, because at that time, it's almost like there was a, a complete underground music economy. Like, you had labels and venues, and it, it's, you know, maybe looking back at the past with, with rose-colored glasses and things like that, but I think, you know, now it's almost impossible to, to imagine a separate economy existing because every band is on Spotify or selling their wares through iTunes or Amazon or, or whatnot. But at that time period, you could have like a completely unconnected little economic force. Sure. I mean, I only really saw that firsthand through discord. Yeah. Which, you know, everyone, I think who was alive then remembers those kind of benchmarks that like their bands went to. And when Fugazi became like, a best-selling band mm-hmm. by, by humble, you know, like punk rock standards. It was pretty powerful as an example. Like, wow, they're like, they're selling tens of thousands of records. Yeah. It's one of those things that's like pretty powerful. And at the same time, like also incredibly daunting and, and then becomes like an unachievable standard, which we all have to live up to. Right. <laughs> as bands. <laughs> like it, it, it really is like, well, Fugazi did it, but it's like, yeah, but kind of only Fugazi did it. Like, there's not really like a whole whack of bands you can point to and be like, see, they all were able to do the exact same thing. Well, yeah, at least at least with them, it was within view, you know, because yeah. they were in touch with like everyone on the ground. Mm-hmm. But then, like, when the Epitaph happened, it was like, well, forget it. Like, 
Yeah, we were proud of like selling out a thousand seven inches. That was a huge deal. But they were like, oh yeah, talk to me later. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny when you even look back at like some of the, like some of the like DIY punk labels that time. Well, like not that they were a DIY punk label at all, but like Sub Pop. You know, they would have limited pressings of four thousand copies of a record. It's like that's limited. There's right. like more than four thousand people that want a Velvet Monkey seven inch out there. Like that is, you know, I, mean, I love Velvet Monkeys, but like that is incredible to think at that time period how how big that underground scene was kind of getting. Yeah, I mean, the pain in hindsight, I feel like we're living the the hell now that. <laughs> yeah. reaped from that of like people recognizing this mass interest and capitalizing on it, mm -hmm. consolidating it, you know, and I think about this often now that like we all live in the world that we created kind of like, wouldn't it be great if I could find a good, a well-fitting black t-shirt anywhere? <laughs> you used to ask that as like a genuine <laughs> query. <laughs> and now that it's possible, it's kind of disgusting. Yeah. You know, like, wouldn't it be great if the, if everybody knew Fugazi, yeah. So there's always that strange, you know, uh, curse of getting what you wish for. Well, it feels like everything in this current day and age from what's happening in politics to what's happening culturally, it's like it's like we're living in like an MDC record. <laughs> totally. And it's just like this dystopic thing that's like, wow, I guess we were right, but it feels so wrong to be so right. I know. I think people forget the horror of the 80s that we're reliving through Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. He doesn't he's not spoken of much in that context, but I think he's kind of like an infomercial gone mad. Yeah. Like well, go on. The precepts of like unbridled capitalism that, that he clearly was like weaned on. That That's very 80s to me. That's not 90s. That's like, you know, it's it's beyond deregulation. It's just like fucking a, a u.s mint in the face <laughs> like <laughs> cocaine the stuff i grew up with around in la like under reagan yeah that that's happening again yeah um but, <laughs> and, but and it's led to like people like you know and I, I imagine it was probably the same thing under other administrations but probably to a lesser extent but like in canada right now our leaders are able to hide in plain sight and they're able to pull tons of shit that they would normally be called upon, called out for in other time periods, but because they're not what's happening south of the border, they're able to just kind of like blend into the woodwork and get away with sort of these, you know, equally abhorrent kind of policies, but dress up a little bit better. Yeah, you're welcome, Canada. <laughs> and I hear the same thing in Mexico. I was in Mexico and they were saying the same thing about the president down there. So I think it's all of us in North America. Yikes. <laughs> uh, but back to a more uh, optimistic time. Uh, when you, you, got, you kind of are going to these New York shows, and then you guys, do you form Rise still in New York, or does that form when you get to L.A.? Uh, I think that name came probably in L.A. Okay. We were, we were called Terminal Island for our first show. Terminal Island? In New York, yeah. What was the sound of that band like? Well, it was pretty wild. We... we uh, we opened, we were the supporting band for Adam's sister, Kembra Fowler. Uh, actually, her husband at the time, Samoa, who they, he did a performance art piece, an opera called Under the Bad, Under the Bad Star at La Mama Theater. And so it was like a Lower East Side art event. 
and we were the band and he did uh, this beautiful kind of I don't know what you would call it really it was it was there were tights and there were volcanoes and there were you know topless people <laughs> <laughs> so we were the we they asked us to to be the score to that <laughs> and uh, it was basically us still trying to figure out what our sound was which was kind of like really schizophrenic and kind of bad brains and and kind of everything else we listened to yeah um, chris and chris coming from a new england hardcore background and us coming from the west coast like just tearing each other apart basically <laughs> we're, i guess we're the bad brains like the common band you guys kind of had because you said you guys weren't as versed in the east coast stuff that was happening at the time I think we could agree that they were great. Yeah, that's like the one shit. <laughs> um, yeah, and I was just proficient enough on guitar to kind of emulate Dr. No style, like chugga chugga stuff. Were there vocals on this show? Uh, there were not ours. Not, yeah, not okay. yeah, <laughs> no. And that, that was really it until like we ended up re, re meeting, taking a year and going to LA and playing trying to be a band for real. And at that point we had our friend John was singing for us and, um, that would have been Rias. So it was, it was four, we were a four piece and we just played parties. Basically that was, we didn't have any proper show. When you were kind of in New York and you're in that sort of early embryonic kind of band stage, were you guys trying like different styles of bands or you're just doing a band with all different styles of music in the same band? I, I think it was. Aren't we? Aren't those the same thing? Well, no. I, like I, I know I probably phrased that a little awkwardly. I'm thinking more like, did you were you like, okay, now we're gonna do like a, a DC style Revolution summer band, or now we're gonna do like a an LA hardcore style band, or a or a hardcore type band, or were you just kind of like trying to write any type of song and just sticking it in the same band? Yeah, I think it was more the the latter. Okay. Like, just what what we played like at that time. Yeah. And for me, it was, it was definitely a lot of like, um, embrace. Mm -hmm. Like it just like, for me, I was a guitarist. So it was like guitar moves that I kind of learned, picked up from records to go, Oh, this is how that, that sound happens. Well, cause and you I, guys, yeah. Cause you guys stumble upon such a, like, Oh, not stumble upon, but eventually arrive at such a unique sound. So it's, it's amazing. I guess it's like, all these early influences, especially like all the early influences you had, even in Portland, kind of coming together and kind of achieving this awesome thing. I really think it was just just like a, a happy failure, you know, <laughs> like all creation, really like a, a failure to be what you want to be and like failing into yourself. That's cool. that's how it I think that's how it happened. Like we couldn't be the things we wanted to be. Yeah, like what did you want it to be? Because I think all bands kind of have that too, like their ideal band that they would be if it wasn't a band, if it was a dictatorship and they could achieve exactly what they wanted to sound like. What were the bands that you were kind of hoping to sound like? I had so many over so much time. Mm -hmm. I think more than anything, we just wanted to be a band and go play shows. Mm -hmm. Like we really just wanted to do what other bands did, which was travel and be adored. <laughs> 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 oh, I know that. I know the allure of that. I can well relate to the allure of that. 
So uh, yeah, like eventually you do sing Rise Records, right? Like you guys did a, a demo. We did, yeah. And that's where you and first I, sang, right? Two, two songs, yeah. Two songs. John sang, yeah, all the rest. Had you ever thought about singing at all? Was that something you'd like? Had you, how did you kind of find your voice? I, you know, I, as I recall, it was it was writing the song "Shield Your Eyes," and I just wrote it in my room in Venice, California, like my my dad's house where I lived, and um, and I don't know how it happened. Honestly, it was just a, like a you know putting words to chords kind of thing. And but I can tell you that definitely the germ of that song was drama rama say uh, anything anything. That's a killer track, right? And if you oh. listen, like the you know, it's actually the same kind of structure. Like you can see how that hook was. I was trying to redeploy that. At you oh. your eyes. Yeah, that's so right. I, I got to go back and listen to it again. That song for a long time. Oh yeah, that's like probably one of the greatest one hit wonder bands of all time like i i've listened to that other record but that song is just like it's almost like a one of those new zealand bands like those flying nun bands i find all those bands seem to have like one song that's just on like another level than all the rest of their catalog and i guess the Dremorama could be the new zealand flying nun band of america right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it was kind of a template for a lot to come like i i think you can hear sam i am in that like mm-hmm. a lot of I guess what would be like proto emo or something kind of, kind of whining, you know, like kind of keening the vocal, like cracking his voice. And I don't know, there are aspects of it that were, were really helpful. Yeah. yeah, And I've never thought of it that way too, but like, especially like when at the end, when he's kind of like ranting, it really is like a, you know, like the, the most emotive mainstream song up until that point ever. Yeah. And it's a loop too. It's a you loop. Know? I mean, like the guitar loop. Oh kind of, yeah. It's kind of that recurrent phrase under changing chords. Yeah. That's really what I think Jawbreaker ended up doing a lot. And that was just a I think how Chris and I learned to play together, or we figured out that sounds cool when I do the same thing and you change. You know? That's awesome. No, that, that makes total sense now that you explained it. How did the uh, relationship with Shredder Records come about? Like, were they like just on that was Mel just like part of the scene that you knew he I think he was he heard a tape that we sent to MRR okay um yeah somehow he got wind of us like of our tape that we kept sending up to the Bay Area hoping to be noticed (laughs) to be accepted because LA was such a wasteland at that time well yeah like who were you because you eventually start playing shows who do you guys start playing shows with uh I well our first show was pretty pretty great actually it was at club 88 in in the west side of la and um imperial butt wizards were like the the band okay that was mike quercio from the three o'clock oh another, wow yeah another favorite band of mine <laughs> the paisley back to the paisley underground exactly yeah, yeah totally that like um cantaloupe girlfriend that first ep they did yeah so great <laughs> that's fucking awesome so that was like his kind of crazy you know performance rock band and uh i was pretty odd it was like meeting prince or something from you know but there, no one came you know it was like a totally empty show pay to play so all our, all our shows basically in la were like pay to play mm-hmm. um yeah the anti-club and club 88 i think those were the ones we did locally 
And then we go, we were lucky enough to get a Gilman show, probably because someone at MRR or someone in the scene liked our tape and said, hey, they should let them open a show. So, and that's really when we kind of connected with an audience. Yeah, because it seems like like it's such a natural fit. Like all the bands sounded so different, obviously at that time. But I mean, like it just like scene wise, you guys going up there. Was there any sort of semblance of a scene that you guys were fitting into in LA at that time, or is it really only when you get up to San Francisco? Yeah, there wasn't. I mean, it was piecemeal. Chris was better. At, Chris went to more shows mm-hmm. on his own, and um, you know, he met kind of people from like Orange County and like early, early Offspring and. Pennywise and stuff. He he saw those bands when no one, when we didn't know about them. Yeah. So they were happening in their own little enclaves. But you know, LA is so partitioned that way. Mm-hmm. And if like we lived in the west side of LA, where nothing like that was going on. Um. So you, Huntington Beach is a totally different world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's but, amazing how spread out that city is, and like the, there is transit, but it's not like it's connected in the same way by that transit. So. Yeah, it really feels like you could have separate scenes that never shall meet. Yeah, yeah, very much. And also, curiously, like when out-of-town bands came to L.A., people rarely noticed. I I remember seeing Government Issue at the Anti-Club with like 10 people. And that was during Crash. You know, they were like at peak of their (laughs) national fame. And that, that happened a lot. Like Lemonheads would play and there would be like 15 or 20 people there. It was just crazy. Why was that at the time? Is there just like no centralized scene? Is there no centralized media source, do you think? Or is it just speak to kind of like where the L.A. scene was at the time period? No, I think you're right. I mean, it was there wasn't a, a kind of press voice for, for you know, telling people about those fans. And, um, yeah, there wasn't like a, a civic consciousness that way. Yeah. Well, it was much more introspective and kind of people trying to figure out who they were. Hard to know. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to know others in LA. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I think they made a couple movies about that. <laughs> um, did you? Uh, so when you guys get up to to Berkeley, did it really feel like kind of this? Oh, now we're, this makes sense, or was it kind of? Did that come later on, or did that ever come? I don't know that it it, it ever came, but it was certainly like the first time we played there was really exhilarating. Um, playing Gilman and having people like. I mean, one or two people who had heard our tape mm-hmm. <laughs> liked, and it, it just seemed really hopeful there. Like yeah. the energy was so buoyant, you know, and like, and it was really goofy too, which was so refreshing coming after LA and New York where it was all like deadly serious. But you know, a lot of those bands like East Bay bands were just off the wall. Mm-hmm. And so that spirit was pretty, pretty energizing. Who did you guys play with that first show? I think it was Victim's Family. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was a pretty good show. Um, it was, of course, it was like the day after Op Ivy, so no one was there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, but still, like, it was cool for us. Were, were you guys aware of, obviously, you aware enough of Max Rock and Roll to send the tape, but was that something you guys read on the regular at that time period? We did, yeah. We, yeah, we read Flipside and, and MRR and, you know, all the... All that stuff. All the gossip rags. Yeah. Seen worse, you know, like <laughs> trying to stay abreast of things. <laughs> yeah, you have to. It's the Especially CNN of the era. So lonely down there. 
<laughs> so I guess like, were you aware of like the the energy and the the scene that was kind of like bubbling up around the Gilman at the time before you got there? Yeah, uh, I don't know that we really were until we got in it. Okay, and, so, and saw what, saw how it was being done, and then it it was just so counter to Southern California logic, you know, mm-hmm. like. I mean, really, everything about it, like all ages, volunteer, our space, you know, those things were really hard won down in L.A. Like you had to do it at a house or a garage or whatever. So to be seen, see it done kind of at a, at a like slightly official level was, was really inspiring. Yeah, that's kind of the model that, you know, in, for every year that followed, people emulated for the longest time of like how you'd set up, you know, you'd want your scene set up with like a great collective venue at the center of it and this incredible diverse array of bands playing there. Like, I think that's like when I think of my ideal punk scene, like I know a lot of people talk about different eras of DC or LA during like, you know, the early black flag era or things like that. But for me, it's, it's that San Francisco scene where you have like neurosis playing with Econochrist, playing with operation Ivy, playing with crimp shrine, playing with you guys playing like it's all the bands are so different, but yet everyone just fits together because they all want to do this. Yeah. You know, I honestly, I felt that in Seattle too. Oh really? Yeah, I did. I mean, this was earlier scene in Seattle, Seattle, but when we go up there, it was just crazy. Mm hmm. Because they we play with like unknown sub pop bands, you know, or like Swallow was one band oh, we played, awesome. like kind of one record or one yeah. set of bands. But it was at the off ramp, and it was like it would just be packed because it was Friday night or something. Yeah, and like people were so into music, like broadly and objectively, and like the enthusiasm there was was really exciting mm-hmm. for us. You know, they didn't know us, but they they knew we they saw we were like a loud guitar band and I think responded to that. Did you guys ever play with the fastbacks? Cause I imagine that would be a bill that would make sense. I don't know that we did. Uh, we, we, we certainly liked them, mm-hmm. but late, I think got to know them later as a band. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we did. Uh, what were some of the early Gilman bands that, you know, you were into at that time period? Cause they are like, once again, so different sounding. Um, yeah, well, I, Gilman, I guess, or Bay Area bands. Like it doesn't have to specifically be Gilman bands. I th- I mean, we moved. We were in San Francisco and and kind of got to know Steel Pole Bathtub pretty quickly. Okay. So they were like friends um, and a band that we kind of admired creatively. Like they were so so creative. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, Econochrist, because we knew them from tour. And oh, did you guys meet them first through touring before you? I think we met them in Arkansas. Oh, yeah, because that's right. They're from Arkansas originally before they go to the Bay. Yeah, but they it's weird. They were living in the Bay Area at the time, and we were probably living in New York. <laughs> we met at the Antenna in Memphis, which was like their homecoming gig. <laughs> and they were totally insane, like at that point. I mean, that we had like a, a firework battle out in the street. <laughs> like, it's and we ended up, it was like a little mini tour. We went with them to New Orleans and Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We did like three or four shows with them and, and bonded pretty hard. And that was your first time out. That's not because you guys did that hell, uh, did that 90 tour with them too, right? Like an actual tour tour. 
I think that was the one. Oh, that's the one. I had booked this impossible two-month tour for us. And that I, I'm pretty sure that was like the one good part of it. It was just the, the like a like-minded band and, and actually got to like hang out <laughs> for a minute. Uh, what were, yeah, like, you know, because that time period of playing shows, like that's pre- I guess alternative music explosion type thing. What were like a lot of the cities you guys were hitting at at that time? Like, what were those shows like in, you know, places like Arkansas where it's not O'Connor Christ's home time, homecoming gig, gig or something, or people in place in Memphis or something like that. People in place in Tennessee, I should say. Uh, you mean what were the other shows like? Yeah, they were pretty pretty stark. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of like closed venues and you know like two day drives. And I mean, you, it made, made like the, the joy of hitting an actual cultural pocket much more profound. Like when we played Gainesville, suddenly it was like, there's VAR from no idea, you know, and like this great hardback show that was packed, even though it might've been 40 people, but it seemed packed. But then we, you know, we'd go to like, um, Texas and play Dallas and there's nobody there. And so it was, yeah, it was very uh, sporadic. Yeah, like, and I guess that's like, you know, before, you know, you mentioned VAR, like obviously now Gainesville, the fest, and no idea, it's like institutions. But at that point, it's still just a fanzine. And were you like familiar with it before you guys got there? Because that's, you guys did a split record, I guess, a few years later. Yeah. No, at that time, we had no idea. And it, and it no, no pun. No pun, yeah. Um, <laughs> And it was, and it really was like this great little like oasis of kind of sleepy college town, you know, um, mellow people who, who like knew our band or liked our band. And it felt, I thought it was really beautiful at that time. Were you booking, uh, this tour just kind of like out of book your own fucking life or just based on people giving you phone numbers? It was, yeah, I just got phone numbers however I could. I don't. I don't know the book Your Own Fucking Life existed yet. Yeah, I think it's a couple years later, actually. You're right. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't know how I got those numbers. And I, some of them I wish I didn't. <laughs> I think my band was pretty bummed on me at that point. <clears throat> it seems like that's like, you know, it, it begat so many bands of that, or sorry, it, it befell so many bands of that era. It's just like the, this trying to tour across America at the time and in Canada too I guess like trying to tour across Canada where there's these pockets where you're not going to have a good show for for weeks on end or or seemingly weeks on end yeah it was really it was it was real battle like it was a real struggle survive you know like survival kind of struggle I remember being dehydrated a lot like you're not old enough to know how to drink water yeah (laughs) it was kind of before water you know like People didn't buy bottled water then, <clears throat> and I would just forget to drink water for like days. I think, and it was probably the summer, right? So it's like a million it was, degrees. It was the summer? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a yeah, that's that, a, that, was a, that was a bitch and tour because we we did a lot of Canada too, which was like totally ill advised. Yeah, I was gonna say it's still ill advised for a lot of bands to try and do that. I mean, we were everywhere. We we ended up. I remember the, I think the end of the tour was in. Minneapolis and um, we had driven like 36 hours or something from Canada to get to that show <laughs> and had to like immediately play and it was just I such fatigue you know 
Is it on that tour? No, it must be when you guys go back a few years later. But Propagandi opened for you guys at at a show, I think, in Minneapolis. That uh, yeah, or maybe Winnipeg. I I, I don't. I think it was an American show because they said it was the only good show they ever had on their first tour. Okay, maybe it was that show. Yeah, because they they've come on the podcast and both uh, Jordan and Chris have talked about how that was like. That was like, oh, there was a first show of tour. They're like, this is going to be amazing. There's all these kids here. It's a great show. And then it was like downhill every show after. Yeah. But you kind of have to do that in a band. It's almost like you need to kind of like build up your calluses with that first tour to help you get through all the other tours. I think that's true. And it also strangely comes back to you later on. Like people from those first shows periodically come out of the woodwork and tell you that they were there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Pretty, mm-hmm. pretty rewarding actually to think like, that's, ah, it's good that we did that. It's a great story to have in your life. Well, yeah. It's like find a payphone in the desert, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, especially at those shows that you're talking about where you're like, you know, you're playing to 10 kids, but to those 10 kids, you know, like, that's that's the world like for jawbreaker coming through in 90 and playing some of these towns where they probably would never have had you know anyone like you guys or you guys otherwise coming through there it's like how much art did you guys inspire with those that early tour like how many people did you inspire to go out there and you know maybe start a band maybe just do something else creative but like it's amazing to think how important even the bummer shows are yeah so you kind of come back from that tour and the band more or less uh, breaks up, right? Like it's, you guys were kind of done at that point? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, actually. I th- but I'll, I'll say I'll I agree. According, <laughs> according to the official, uh, official history, I guess. But like then, you know, you come back and is it, the next record's on Tupelo, right? When you come back? Tupelo. Yeah. How did that relationship with that label come about? I, you know, I think that was Lance Hahn. Okay. I think he was working at, um, Mortem and, and knew Gary and we absolutely loved bitch magnet (laughs) and listened to that, the umber and like over and over that first EP of theirs. And so we thought, Oh, this is a cool label. Like, and Lance said, Oh, I know those guys, you know, (laughs) and he introduced us to Gary Held. Um, so, and Gary was willing to do an album with us. It's, so that's, that's really how it happened. It was just kind of local. I mean, they were right down the street from us. It's funny you mentioned Bitch Magnet because, you know, th- that's a band that comes up on the show. I don't think there's a band in history that's been more poorly served by their name. Because how good is that band versus how kind of poorly that name is aged? Yeah, I know. I, I, I was being kind of an unwitting male a young male at the time, like the first woman I told about that band, it was like, ew. <laughs> it, it just, it simply never occurred to me that that would be offensive in some way. Yeah. Because I heard it, like you hear a band name, you don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I realized, oh yeah, right. Yeah, I can see how that would strike a chord. <laughs> you know? And I think but, at the time, like the scene they were playing to, it's like, I, you would imagine that a lot of people would have got it. But now it's like, Wow, like if that band had a different name, I think people would be celebrating them as one of the great unheralded bands of the era. 
Yeah. I mean, and they totally, that did fit kind of the forced exposure, yeah. like, yeah. scene Answer of me. The, the irony was apparent or was, you know, legible. Yeah. So, yeah. We're, we're in a very unironic era. Communion, like, that's another label that, you know, put out so many different but amazing sounding bands. Did a lot of that New Zealand stuff. They did a lot of the catalog bringing, uh, bringing that stuff over here. And Tupelo and Communion both had that relationship with each other. So you guys are kind of fitting in with that scene at that time. Like, who are you playing with during that era? Uh, it, most, I mean, we, God, I don't know. Like, we would play anywhere we could, really. Mm-hmm. And so in SF, you know, it would be um, uh, boner bands. Yeah. Because that was kind of a, a whole enclave there. So Duh and like Star Pimp or Ovarian Trolley or kind of groups like that were kind of more, the city was, you know, very much in like a more adult kind of scene, sonically, I would say. And, um, and then the East Bay, it was, it, it was like a double life. You know, because yeah. it's such a different scene in East Bay. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's funny, those scenes are happening at the exact same time, and yet it seems so, like, separated by, well, I guess it's separated by generations, but, it, like, separated by worlds, but you're the band that kind of straddled both of them? We tried to be. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there, there was definitely, a, there were, like, there were fishers, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> what was that Boner record scene like? Were they like receptive to kind of the sound you're doing? Because you don't sound like Fang, for instance. Yeah, I know. And we always felt like the the ugly stepchild, like like oh they they're putting up with us, you know. They we thought we felt like we were punk and and like too optimistic and naive for them, <laughs> yeah. which was probably true because they were pretty dark. <laughs> they're pretty dark, yeah. But but they were no, they respected us. You know, I lived with Bob McDonald who. Was, is at Revolver and was like a longtime boner, kind of part of that group. Mm-hmm. He was singer, duh. And like they would come out to shows, and obviously Gary didn't put out things he didn't like. So he liked us, but we were certainly atypical, of, but of an atypical label, I guess you could say. Like no one was really sounding alike on that label. Yeah, did you guys ever feel like you were a part of a scene? Because you know, the ba- Jawbreaker obviously has like a lot of the same sensibilities of, of some of these East Bay bands, but you're doing something a lot more mature, which I guess is why you fit in that boner record scene. Did you ever feel more comfortable in any one scene or is it kind of constantly between two worlds? I think it, I think that was our charm. You know, we were, we were like perpetually alienated. <laughs> I like wrote about that a lot. A yeah. Lot of those things are about not fitting in. Um, so, I, there was like, you know, there was a, a kind of natural unease with the whole thing, which just comes down to our personalities, really. <laughs> we tried, you know, I, I lived, I moved to the East Bay and kind of became apart from my band later on. And like, I think 24 Hour Revenge Therapy comes out of a lot of that experience of like my East Bay life, um, which is my home, actually. I mean, I grew up in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a interesting homecoming. Yeah, it must have been, you know, when I and that also that city changes so much and has changed so much. I imagine from when you grew up to when you were living there again uh, to even now, it's probably changed like incredibly. Yeah, and, and yet not like Berkeley is always the same. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's still the same like fuzzy 
fuzzy wizards walking around on telegraph and <laughs> preaching to the sky. You know, it's still totally insane. Yeah, I guess it's one of those places that will never completely be gentrified. Like there will always be that freak flag flying somewhere. It's yeah. It is there. They're property owners. Yeah, you can't yeah. dispossess them until they die, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they've become millionaires now because those properties are worth tens of millions of dollars. But It's true. It's, and all they want to do is just be left alone, you know, yeah. or like be left <laughs> to weird eclecticism. Well, Blake, I could talk to you all day, and we barely scratched the surface. So at some point in the future, would you be willing to come back for a part two? I would, I would sir. This has been an incredible thrill to get to talk to you, and thank you for doing this and nerding out with me today. And, uh, yeah, thank you for the music, because as I said at the top of the show, you know, you've influenced so many people, myself included, so thank you for that. Hey, well, thank you for having me. It's It's a pleasure, really. And as you hear right there, Blake is going to come back on the show for some more parts. Thank you, Blake, for coming on the show. That was, as I say, a dream come true. Once again, thank you very much to Tristan. Thank you to Adam. Adam is also hopefully going to come on the show in the future as well. So, you know, the jawbreaker turned out a punk relationship will only go from strength to strength from here. And it makes me overjoyed that I get to say that <laughs> really speaking of being overjoyed next week, I got I got a, a, a bundle of joy dropping for you next week on the show. It's someone who, uh, I've known for a long time about this gentleman's punk past. And I think for Canadian music fans, it will be a, a pretty fun listen, uh, music fans in general, but especially us that grew up in Canada, because this guy's kind of our Bruce Springsteen in a, in a way. Next week on the show, Jim Cuddy of the band Blue Rodeo is on to talk about growing up in Toronto punk rock. And there's a lot of fun intersections here. And there's also a funny story involving uh, Steve, who was doing publicity for him, that I'll get to and leads to a future guest. Anyway, that is all next week on the show. That's like, I can't believe it. Blake, one week. Jim Cuddy the next week, a week after, I'm working on something great. 2018 is the year of Turned Out of Punk. This is the year we're going to, we're going to, you know, take this thing to, to those best show like heights. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Nothing can touch the best show. Nothing can touch the best show. Uh, that is all for this week's show. Uh, thank you for listening. And I will, uh, I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week for uh, another great one. And a uh, week after that, working on something else great. And we get that something else. Cool. You know, I'm just going to keep working on this thing for you. Cause you know what? Anyone can do this shit, go out there and make your own culture, but it helps if you have a, a, an amazing little brother to help you out and some amazing friends to help you out too. So build a cool network of people and then go out there and build your own culture. You know, there's like a, a one, two process, an AB process right there. See you next week.